Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm talking with Carrie McDonald. Carrie McDonald is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom and a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. She's the author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside of the Conventional Classroom. Carrie, thanks for joining me on the call today. Oh, I'm glad to be with you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Carrie, I've... I wanted to get you on the call because I've been listening to your book on Audible this week, and it was so fascinating. So much of the history of schooling in our country and compulsory schooling and alternatives to traditional schooling, there's so many options out there that people oftentimes don't even know about. Um, But I'm curious, what got you interested in this thing called unschooling in the first place? Or actually, education in the first place, <laughs> yeah. the whole idea of pedagogy. Yeah, so I was uh, an economics major as an undergraduate in the late 1990s, but through the lens of economics, became interested in education and education policy, in particular, uh, seeing sort of the lack of choices in the education sector compared to other markets and realizing that that was primarily due to the government schooling monopoly uh, in education for the most part with families sort of being assigned to compulsory district schools and most families not having another option beyond that. So I began to take more education classes as an undergraduate. And my senior year, I was doing an independent research project on homeschooling, uh, where I had the opportunity to shadow a homeschooling family that lived nearby to my campus. And it was just completely um, you know, captivating for me that I was able to see an entirely different way of learning. I had gone through K to 12 public schools. That was sort of what I expected education to look like. And then seeing this homeschooling family really um, allowing their children's interests to drive learning and seeing the kind of authentic socialization in their community, uh, as opposed to sort of the edu- age segregated socialization that we find in, in schools. All of that um, I just found completely mesmerizing and really got me increasingly interested in alternative education, uh, more interested in education choice. This was the late 1990s. So homeschooling uh, had just become legally recognized in the U.S. a few years prior by the mid-1990s and was still really kind of a tiny uh, marginal education option. The U.S. Department of Education first began tracking homeschoolers in the late 1990s, and they counted 850,000 at the time. Of course, now we're at more than 5 million, uh, accelerated by the pandemic response. So uh, it was really kind of a new... um, new in terms of its uh, mainstream appeal in in the late 1990s. Of course, the modern homeschooling movement began in the late 60s and early 1970s. But over the past couple of decades, it's really exploded. And so um, from that time, shadowing that homeschooling family in college and also that same time doing uh, some student teaching practicum work in a local public elementary school and really for the first time being able to see the contrast in these different types of learning environments up close um, got me much more interested in education. So I went to graduate school in education policy at Harvard, became much more involved in the school choice movement and looking at ways to encourage the expansion of education options for families, um, including through policy and legislation, but also through education entrepreneurship and family empowerment. 
And so then, you know, a decade later, when I had my own children and, and was and they were young and I was thinking about education options for them, uh, you know, homeschooling just made sense for my husband uh, and I. And we just realized that we were, you know, here we live in Cambridge, Massachusetts and have so many resources available to the kids around us in terms of museums and libraries and extracurricular events and historic sites uh, that really to send them to school would sort of narrow their learning. And we wanted uh, to continue to provide that kind of expansive, immersive learning environment for them. Oh, yeah, there's so much to unpack there. And there's I, I, I love everything that you said about that uh, in that last part about creating a more expansive environment. You know, my my daughter wanted to go to uh, public school and, and we were really pushing home homeschool. But we thought, well, she really wants to do this. But I just felt so sad because I knew that her the way that uh, schooling is set up, that her everything that she was learning would be such a constrained vision uh of what a broader education could be if she decided to stay homeschooled. And fortunately, after the first week, she decided, ah, I think I'll, I'll come home and be homeschooled. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, at least she tested the know, waters I, there. I, so <laughs> yeah, given the, given her a little bit of an option, but you, you mentioned there that you had this opportunity to do, a. I guess an intensive study of a homeschooling family, that seems very unusual. How did that come about in your program? Yeah, I was doing an independent research project in an education seminar. Um, we could pick any topic we wanted. And I was curious in this thing called homeschooling. And, uh, you know, what was it? What did it look like? And I happened to have a classmate who had family members who lived nearby to campus. And so she was able to connect me with them. And, and that led to being able to, um, you know, spend that semester kind of shadowing them and learning about how their children learn outside of school. And then again, seeing the contrast between that way of learning uh, and the conventionally schooled children in the local district school. Okay. And then you said that you went on to Harvard. Now, I know I've read Thomas Sowell's uh, autobiography, and he says a lot of negative things about Harvard. What was that like being at one of the top elite schools in the world? Well, you know, at the time, school choice was really just coming on the scene. Um, this was, I graduated from graduate school in 2001. And so at the time, if you were interested in all, at all in um, kind of alternative education or educational freedom or different models, then uh, charter schools were kind of where you were focusing <laughs> because that was really the only um, kind of mainstream option that was gaining popularity uh, in terms of providing more choices for families. So I began working with some think tanks and looking at the emerging charter school movement. And then um, it's been wonderful to see over the past couple of decades, just the expansion of school choice, uh, much beyond charter schools, although there's still a lot of room for improvement there in terms of lifting charter school caps in very various states and, um, you know, providing families that want that option to choose a uh, publicly funded but privately run school that's not tied to their zip code. I think a lot of families, you know, really gravitating towards that. And we're seeing even increased interest in charter schools over the past couple of years with the pandemic response. So it just shows that families really want and demand education choice 
um, just like they demand and want choice in all other areas of their lives. And of course, we have so much more choice and so much more abundance, so uh, so many more options related to our preferences in every other area of our lives. And yet education continues to be, for the most part, kind of this one-size-fits-all, heavily government-dominated model. So um, the more we can kind of break that down and provide more choices for families, the better. Yeah, yeah. I was I was curious though about your experience at Harvard. What was that like going to Harvard at at one of the most elite schools in the world? Well, I would say that it's also um, the place where I sort of began um, my exposure to libertarianism. <laughs> uh, so, oh, you know, I was sort really? of apolitical as uh, you know, growing up and even in undergrad, um, you know, didn't give much thought to. To politics or political theory, of course, as an economist or trained as an economist as an undergrad, uh, you know, I began to certainly value free markets and realize the unintended consequences of uh, government involvement in the markets. So that was so maybe that was sort of the academic seeds. Um, but then when I <laughs> went to Harvard, uh, it became crystallized for me. I remember. Uh, I was in one graduate school class where we had to meet up in small groups to talk about a policy solution to a particular uh, public policy issue. And we had, say, 20 minutes in the small group to come up with our policy solution. And so we started off in the group, and somebody said, well, let's just raise taxes. And then somebody else said, well, let's just raise taxes. <laughs> somebody else said, let's just raise taxes. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, two and a half minutes into what would be the 20 minute discussion, it seemed like that we had our solution. And then, of course, it got to me and I said, you know, I don't think raising taxes is the right solution. I think we should look at some other uh, options to this particular policy issue. Uh, and that was really, I think, a crystallizing moment for me as I began to say, you know, what what is sort of a political philosophy around lower taxes, free markets, limited role of government, individual freedom and choice? Uh, and of course, that's what how I found my way to libertarianism. Okay, interesting. So Harvard, a lot of people think of as sort of a, a liberal uh, bastion of contemporary thought, but it's, it actually led you the opposite direction to libertarianism. So that's, that's pretty interesting. What about, tell me yeah. a little bit what, Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something? No, I was just going to say, I think that's true. I think, um, you know, there were, I think then and, and continues to be now, um, sort of a, a monoculture in terms of thought and particularly around education policy. And, and for me, that was very eye opening because I said, you know, this, this doesn't seem right. We need to have, you know, a diverse set of, um, opinions and solutions, uh, to look at these really complex public policy issues. So it was certainly um, helpful for me <laughs> to be able to say, you know, that's not the kind of approach that I'm taking to uh, education policy and realizing that there were other options there. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what it's like being a scholar at the Cato Institute and a, and a education fellow at FEE, which is the Foundation for Economic Education. Um, what does that mean? What, what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah, so my primary work is as a senior fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE.org. Uh, FEE is the country's oldest libertarian think tank. It was founded in 1946 by Leonard Reed, uh, just celebrated our 75th year anniversary. And so I do a lot of writing and speaking, uh, various conferences and engagements through FEE. I just launched a brand new podcast called The Liberated Podcast that really looks at um, education-related issues um, using the principles of 
of a free society or through the lens of a free society, including individual liberty, limited government, free markets, entrepreneurship, and so on. Um, so, you know, a great, a great spot for me. And then with Cato, you know, similar, I do various, you know, policy briefs for them. I did one about why school choice is good for homeschoolers um, and really looking at how expanding school choice can help everybody, including homeschoolers who may not initially sort of real, think that there's anything in it for them. Uh, and just, you know, being able to kind of push the conversation on some of these issues. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So I've always thought of education as being very similar in a way to religion. It's it's very, it can be very personal. It's It's helping shape the way you look at the world, the way you live your life. And yet in the country that was mostly founded on religious freedom, America, it, we have some the very strong laws around education, such as compulsory schooling for the crime of turning six years old, you got to be put in a cage for the next, what, 12 years uh, in, for eight hours a day. How do you think that came about? Yeah, you know, I would also say that the country was founded on educational freedom as well. I mean, we think about um, the early days of the colonies, and I talk about this in the Unschooled book. The P Pilgrims, of course, settled in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1620. Uh, and just a couple of decades later, in the 1640s, they passed the colony's first compulsory education laws um, that for the first time recognized a state interest in educated citizenry and compelled cities and towns of a certain size to either hire a teacher or open and operate a grammar school. So they recognized the need to provide kind of these public options, public education options to families, but the compulsion was on the various municipalities uh, to provide these education resources to any families that wanted them. The compulsion was not on families to take advantage of these education options, and in fact, many didn't. The kind of default uh, in these early colonial days was that the family was the center of a child's education, um, the parents would be the ones ones to determine how their children would be educated and that they would use all kinds of various resources. They would use tutors or they would use what were known as dame schools where your neighbor would have a little kindergarten uh, in the, you know, their kitchen to kind of teach young children their ABCs or they would use apprenticeship programs um, that were, of course, widespread in the colonial and revolutionary era. And that all changed in 1852, when Massachusetts, again, leading the way in compulsion, passed the uh, country's first compulsory education, a uh, compulsory schooling laws, which for the first time mandated school attendance under a legal threat of force. Now parents were compelled to send their children uh, to these district schools. And I go through in the book a lot of um, the kind of history of how that came to be. And a lot of it was really um, embedded in anti-immigrant sentiment. There was an influx of Irish Catholic immigrants in particular into the Boston area in the early to mid-19th century. The population of Boston doubled between 1820 and 1840, and there was a tremendous amount of cultural change. A lot of these uh, uh, immigrants were Irish Catholic immigrants that challenged the dominant Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture and ethos of the time. And so creating these now compulsory public schools 
which were purportedly secular but had um, Protestant teachers and texts, uh, were seen as a way to sort of assimilate these Irish Catholic immigrants. And it's interesting to note, and I talk about this in the book as well, that a lot of Irish Irish Catholic families rebelled and created their own uh, parallel system of parochial schools that really flourished in the late 19th century. Um, And so, you know, I think what we're seeing now is just more and more families um, (laughs) recognizing that they that there is today a mismatch between what they want for their children's education and what is currently provided in district schools. I think the coronavirus response, particularly in the spring of 2020, um, shed a lot of light for families as they saw perhaps for the first time up close through Zoom school what their kids were actually doing in those classrooms and realized that they uh, needed and wanted to take back control of their children's education from um, government officials and school local school officials uh, and find some other options. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a huge mental shift that has to take place in like when people first hear about the idea of homeschooling, they think, uh, at least from what people I've encountered, oh, that's kind of weird. I don't. Why would you do that? Of course, the pandemic has helped with that. But then there's this further idea of unschooling, where it's giving your kid total or at least a lot more responsibility towards self-directed education. That that word unschooling. Why do you think that? What do you think about that word? I don't personally like it that much. I prefer self-directed learning. But why did you choose that word for the title of your book? Yeah, so I define unschooling in the book as disentangling education from schooling and recognizing that even um, as an approach to homeschooling, um, you know, you don't necessarily need to replicate school at home. And of course, this is what a lot of families kind of associated homeschooling with back in the spring of 2020. Oh, we're just going to, you know, kind of import the school curriculum or these kinds of benchmarks and expectations that we find in a conventional classroom. We'll just import that into our home and that's homeschooling. And certainly that's one um, approach. But I would argue that we don't need to be tied to that model of schooling, which again is sort of has these roots in 1970 century industrial model of education, that instead we can think about self-directed education, allowing a child's interests and passions to drive their learning, and then surround them with the tremendous resources of our communities, both digital resources and real life resources in our communities, the mentors, the classes, the enrichment opportunities around us, as well as just, again, this tremendous um, abundance of tools and resources in the online world, many of which are free or low cost. So in some ways, just thinking about education beyond schooling, it makes sense for the 21st century um, when we do have access to so many more resources than we did. You know, you think about when kids used to go to school, it was because that was where the teachers were, and that was where the textbooks were, and that was where the knowledge was was based. Now, of course, we have access to that all around us. And so um, kind of um, having kids be uh, forced to go to school five days a week, 180 days a year um, in this sort of confined age-segregated classroom, I think is, is, is just um, more and more incompatible with the needs and realities of the 21st century. And I think more families are realizing that, you know, one thing that certainly the pandemic response did was uproot our sense of work. And a lot of uh, employers and employees are embracing telework and working from home and having more freedom and flexibility in our work schedules. And that doesn't seem to be going away. And I think more families are realizing, gee, you know, if I'm not tied to an office building five days a week and uh, tied to this kind of conventional notion 
conventions of work, then um, maybe my children don't need to be tied to a conventional approach to education either. Yeah, that's that's a good insight. I hadn't thought of it that way before. You know, I still do find it hard for, uh, to understand why some people find it so strange that uh, to homeschool or unschool your kids, because as an adult, that's the way we learn all the time. When I'm interested in something, I read books about it. I'll go on Amazon. I'll go on YouTube. Uh, if I need to fix something around the house, um, it's like this ju- this sort of just-in-time learning where you're you're learning what you need to, and then you use that. You move on to the next thing. Uh, some things I go really deep on. Some things I just surface level. But we're doing that all the time as adults. But for students and kids, we seem to think that oh no, they need to have this. They need to learn a little bit of everything just in case. And that is just that style of learning. We never do that, or rarely do we do that as we get older and uh, as adults. But for some reason, it, this horrible way of learning seems to persist. What are your thoughts on why that, yeah, why that no, is? I think that's right. You know, I think, but I also think more and more families are realizing um, that children learn in much the same way that adults learn and that we do have all of these incredible resources around us. So why not grant the freedom and flexibility to our children uh, in their learning as we, uh, you know, allow ourselves? And so I think we're, we're seeing that shift. I also think, and I talk about this a bit in Unschooled as well, that um, you know, the realities of the 21st century are such that we increasingly are competing with robots and artificial intelligence. And so when we think about the, the key differentiators between humans and machines, uh, the key differentiators between human intelligence and artificial intelligence, it's things like creativity, curiosity, an entrepreneurial spirit, a desire for exploration and discovery. Um, and those are often the qualities, these these really important, critical human qualities that are eroded through a top-down system of conventional schooling. You know, you think about when a child enters a classroom in the early days of their schooling experience, all of that kind of natural exuberance for learning that young children all exhibit um, slowly sort of fades. And it's not because kids kind of grow out of that exuberance for learning. It's that this conventional system of schooling stifles those qualities, those human qualities of uh, creativity and curiosity and discovery. And so the key really is to just not stifle those human qualities (laughs) and to encourage creativity over conformity and originality over obedience um, to really enable us to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Yeah. Do you see yourself as an entrepreneur uh, doing the roles that you do? I know you also write for Forbes, which is uh, an entrepreneurial website. But how do you? Yeah, you know, I'm a being an entrepreneur. Absolutely, you know, I'm an an independent contractor for the the think tanks that I work with, and one of the kind of best parts of my job is um, being able to identify and write about and spotlight and cultivate uh, education entrepreneurs. I really am inspired by these people, um, who in many cases are educators, who are people who've been, for example, public school teachers, who are leaving the classroom to create micro schools or tutoring programs or platforms that encourage um, different ways of of teaching and learning. And so that is such a great, rewarding thing for me. Mm -hmm. Do you try to inculcate that in your kids as well? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we think about what makes this country great. It really is that entrepreneurial spirit and that um, zest for innovation and invention um, that's available to us here. And so the more that we can encourage um, our children to think originally and creatively uh, and come up with solutions to various problems, I think we'll all be better off. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of what an unschooling day is like in your family? Yeah, so I will say my oldest is a is 15 now. She is enrolled in a uh, dual enrollment high school college um, program through Arizona State University that I highly recommend. It's called ASU Prep Digital. Um, and so she, this was something she wanted to do. She's very passionate about um, academics and excelling in particular math and science are kind of her key uh, interest areas. And so this kind of sort of academic approach was really um, important for her. And so we were able to find this incredible program that she absolutely loves. Um, and that's one of the things that I that I make, that's a, a point that I make in the Unschooled book is that unschooling doesn't mean that you're not using curriculum. It doesn't mean that you're not following sort of this academic timeline. It just means that it's something that that is driven by the child with the support and facilitation of adults. Um, and so, you know, my kids generally do take your academic classes, but there are things that they're particularly interested in. Um, and then they're able to spend a lot of their time in other areas pursuing their other passions. My um, 13-year-old son is a big skateboarder, so he spends a lot of his time skateboarding. Um, my 11-year-old daughter is passionate about a lot of things. In, in particular, she's the musician in our household, so she plays several instruments, and this was something that she you know, really wanted to develop, a passion that, that she had. And then my little guy, my 8-year-old, is interested in everything, but I would say he is our kind of master chess player, cribbage player, board game guy. <laughs> nice. One thing that I've noticed with my kids is that uh, I try to encourage them to create and to not just consume was, uh, you know, try to foster this idea of being a creator and putting things out there rather than just because uh, some of the, sometimes I think the best way to learn is to teach others. So, for example, if my kids get a new toy, I'll try to encourage them, hey, let's put a, a review of it on your YouTube channel and you can talk about the toy, t talk about the different aspects of it. Then they're learning a little bit of marketing, a little bit of video production, things like that. Um, but a, a lot of times <laughs> they'll just sit there and they'll just want to watch YouTube videos of other kids opening their toys or something like that. How do you find a balance between creating versus uh, just allowing your kids or creating and pushing your kids versus allowing them to kind of follow their natural way of learning. Yeah, you know, I just think it comes sort of organically through family dynamics. You know, I mean, parents have expectations for their children and um, they need to kind of stay true to that. You know, one of the things I say very strongly in the Unschooled book is that um, parents have the ultimate responsibility to make sure that their children are highly educated, that their children are highly literate and numerate. And I would say that that goes... the that goes for children who are homeschooled as well as children who are in schools, that it's ultimately up to the parents to make sure that their children are in the best educational environment possible and that they're learning everything that they need to be learning and that they're living up to their full potential. I think that's the parents' responsibility, not the schools or not the, the states. Um, and so, you know, it, it is this balance, you're right, between making sure that children are learning um, the academics they need but also pursuing their passions. And I think, you know, what a lot of unschoolers and homeschoolers would say is that 
that when you allow learning to be more emergent and immersive, um, that happens naturally. You know, like I play, I was just before I got on the call with you today, I was playing Scrabble with my eight-year-old, which of course is, you know, filled with literacy um, and calculations and, and all of that. So I think some of it is just... Um, you know, cultivating those family relationships, pursuing the child's interest and realizing how much learning comes from that. Have you noticed a difference between your, your boys and your girls? I, I forgot how, uh, did you, you said you had three kids? I have four. Yeah. There are two boys and four, two girls. Okay. Yep. Have you, have you noticed a difference between, uh, the boys and girls or has it just been in, individual for each kid? Yeah, I think it's been individual. I don't, I don't see it kind of breaking down by gender. Um, I think it's definitely just individual interests and wonderful seeing their unique personalities and the different ways they learn and the different you know tools and resources that they gravitate to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The re- I guess the reason I ask is because my daughter learned to read fairly uh, early on, uh, but my son, he's turning five now. He's not really interested in. in uh, letters and numbers that much, but he is very interested in helping me build things or fix things around the house. And, um, I, that, and that kind of mimics what I experienced growing up as well. I, I was more actually interested in doing things. And I just, I was curious if, if you've found a similarity, uh, amongst the genders, but probably each kid is Yeah. I mean, I think different. it, I think it could be, yeah. I don't know that it breaks down in my little, um, sample size <laughs> that way, but they all read at different at different ages. Uh, in my book, I cite research that shows that kind of the average age for students learning outside of a conventional classroom to gain proficiency in reading, meaning they could read almost anything, is eight and a half. Uh, and of course, what we find in the U.S. today is that more and more we are uh, in American schools forcing children to learn to read at ever younger ages. Uh, in fact, nowadays expecting kindergartners, so these five-year-olds, to read. And and increasingly we're finding that students that are not reading at that young age um, are either labeled as reading delayed or increasingly labeled with ADHD um, because of their inability to sit still and do academic work in kindergarten. And it's not the kids that have changed, it's the benchmarks that have changed and the academic expectations. Uh, and I think that's the real tragedy is that we need to allow for children to develop on their own individual timelines to recognize that some kids will read at four and four or five, and some kids might not read until they're eight or nine, and we need to provide for that kind of flexibility the same way we provide for that flexibility in other areas of child development. You know, if not every child was walking by the time they're 12 months old, we wouldn't say they were walking delayed. Um, we would ac- acknowledge that there is this span of time <laughs> and that it kind of operates on a bell curve um, of when children learn to walk and when and when children learn to read. And I think providing more of that freedom and flexibility uh, in educational settings is critical and certainly homeschoolers have been doing that for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the, what you mentioned there is that individuality and I I read a lot of books or autobiographies about entrepreneurs and great thinkers. And a lot of times they're, they don't fit the mold. And I fear that's my fear about public education is sort of a one size fits all. It's like, if you're a little bit outside of the norm or on either end of the tail of the bell curve, you, you, you could get labeled, you can get ignored and you can get pushed in a direction that's not really optimized for you. 
But have you found that amongst people like CEOs or entrepreneurs or thinkers? I think you had a story about Thomas Edison uh, about, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his mom started homeschooling him because he was a little bit outside the norm. But have you found that as well? Yeah, I, I talk in the book about Thomas Edison, who uh, went to the school went to school for the first time when he was eight years old. This was kind of mid nineteenth century, and he was he only lasted a couple of weeks because his teacher uh, called him addled, which means kind of fuzzy in the mind, uh, not a clear thinker. And his mom, who was a teacher, really pushed back uh, against the, te- the uh, Thomas's teacher, uh, but didn't make any headway. So she pulled him out and homeschooled him. Uh, he was reading, you know, great literature. By the time he was a tween, he was um, creating a makeshift lab in his basement uh, and, you know, really kind of developed those skills that ultimately led to him um, being an inventor. And in fact, I talk about one of his chemists uh, in a biography of Thomas Edison, uh, who worked in his famous lab in New Jersey. And he said that, you know, uh, if Thomas Edison had gone to school, he wouldn't have had the audacity to create such impossible things. So just this uh, ability to look beyond kind of convention and imagine different possibilities and different solutions as opposed to um, kind of the standardized way in which we learn in school, I think is so critical. And one of the pieces of research that I cite in the Unschooled book um, is research on the outcomes of grown unschoolers. So the uh, person who wrote the foreword to my unschooled book is Dr. Peter Gray, who's a psychology professor at Boston College and a um, big proponent of self-directed learning. And he and his colleague, Gina Riley, did a survey of grown unschoolers. And they found that more than half of these <laughs> grown unschoolers were working as entrepreneurs in adulthood. And many of them were, were working in fields related to interests that they uh, began cultivating in childhood or adolescence. Uh, so really no surprise there, I think, that this, again, this creativity, curiosity, ability to think about things in a different way uh, would lead to uh, entrepreneurship in later in life. Yeah. Part of what I liked about your book is how you incorporate uh, quotes and books from both the left and the right. So you had quotes in there from Noam Chomsky, um, and you had quotes from the other side as well in books and resources. Uh, it seems to me that the the old left, like the '60s, like hippie, they were they would be more um, favorable towards this type of schooling. But now it seems like the left is more aligned with uh, the status model, the one size fits all. Do you still see the, uh, this, uh, there's a, that there's a distinction between left and right as it relates to homeschooling? Well, it's one of the reasons why I trace the origins of unschooling and self-directed education um, back to the ideas of the Enlightenment and of John Locke, who was even in the late 17th century, what we would think of as a proponent today of gentle parenting and natural learning. Uh, and of course, you know, kind of formed the foundation of our liberal values of non-coercion and of uh, self-determination and tolerance for difference. Uh, And so I think those are classical liberal values that we see in the history of unschooling and, of course, in other areas as well, uh, and that we just need to remember today that, you know, this is about... 
choice over force, uh, consent over coercion. You know, one of my favorite quotes from John Locke is, it is one thing to persuade, another to command, uh, one thing to uh, push with penalties, another with argument. Uh, something, I think I just botched that a little bit, but it's something along those lines. And, you know, it, I think it's even more relevant today. We have to think about uh, freedom over force. And, and certainly we've seen that um, in the evolution of homeschooling and unschooling as well. Yeah. Well, Carrie, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come on the call with me and talk about your book and these ideas. Are, is there anything that we've, we have or haven't covered today that you'd like to add before we end the call? No, it's been great talking with you, Aaron. I would just say that uh, to your listeners, they can find me at the Foundation for Economic Education at fee.org slash Kerry, K-E-R-R-Y. There you can see links to my articles, um, find my new podcast, uh, sign up for my weekly newsletter and connect with me in social media and over email. Great. Thanks so much for coming on the call today, Kerry. Thanks, Aaron.